Welcome to the Social Learning Amplified podcast, the podcast that brings us candid conversations with educators who are finding new ways to engage and motivate their students inside and outside the classroom. Each episode of Social Learning Amplified will give you real-life examples and practical strategies you can put into practice in your own courses. Let's meet today's guest. Thank you for joining us today as 2023 draws to a close and we conclude the first half of Season 2 of the Social Learning Amplified podcast series with an episode on digital learning. I'm your host, Eric Mazur, and our guest on the episode today is Dr. Janae Cohn. Janae, thank you for being here today. I'm so excited to be talking to you about your new book, Designed for Learning. Thank you, Eric. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to talking to you more about the book, too. Yes, but before we do, let me start by telling the audience a bit about uh, our guest. Dr. Janae Cohn writes and speaks about teaching and learning for international audiences. As the Executive Dean at the Center for Teaching and Learning at UC Berkeley, she manages the teams that are responsible for faculty development programming, campus assessment, and instructional design. Janae has held prior roles at California State University, Sacramento, Stanford University, and the University of California at Davis. She's the author of two books, Design for Learning, which I mentioned earlier, and which was published very recently by Rosenfeld Press, and Skim Dive Surface, Teaching Digital Reading, published by West Virginia University Press in 2021. I'm also truly excited that we will hold a perusal Engage event with Janae about her book. More information at the end of this podcast. So, Janae, first of all, congratulations on your new book, and I'm going to give the full title now, Designed for Learning, User Experience in Online Teaching and Learning. I found it a fascinating read as it really reinforced much of my own thinking about the design of <clears throat> digital learning spaces. Some, or maybe I should actually say, uh, as you say in your book, learning experiences. Um, I mean, we were all thrown into that arena when COVID hit, and I'd like to get back to the changes precipitated by COVID later on. I, I, I love especially how in the book you go from setting the the context and researching who the learners are to articulating clear learning outcomes before discussing what sets an online space apart from on-site learning spaces. And then, you know, diving into the details of course design and course facilitation. And finally, most importantly, also ending with, you know, assessment strategies, both assessing the learners as well as assessing, you know, your own approaches. So my first question really is, um, what brought you to writing this book? Yes, thanks for asking that question, Eric. So a few different factors, and I I should acknowledge that I co-wrote this book with my colleague, Michael Greer. Um, And so Michael and I both have training and experience in teaching first-year composition and writing, and especially online writing instruction. And we pivoted a lot in both of our respective careers around doing work um, both with teaching, but also with faculty development, instructional technology, instructional design. And so kind of working across those different industries, we really saw that there was a lot of shared knowledge around kind of best pedagogical teaching practices in the faculty development space, but also a lot of overlap in thinking about how you specifically design an online training or learning experience, 
we were both quite interested in user experience research because when we were building online writing courses, both of us were thinking a lot about the kind of constraints and the affordances, if you will, of the learning management systems and websites that we had to use for our courses. We were thinking quite a lot about the intersection between learning environments, learning tools, and learning outcomes, all kind of interrelating to each other and impacting exactly what the experience would be like for students. And it just struck us that we weren't seeing very many other books or even articles out there that were really explicitly connecting and attention to how you really have to deliberately design and build an online experience to really be in alignment with the pedagogical best practices we saw being discussed in higher education. So we really saw this book as kind of an opportunity to bridge conversations that to us felt so obviously interrelated, but that hadn't quite been connected in the ways that we had really hoped to see. So um, we're hoping this book, you know, will be useful to a variety of different audiences that engage with teaching, with training, with workshops, with anything that really happens in, a, in an exclusively online space to get really a lot more intentional about not just taking the tools and spaces and users, right, the students for granted, but really, again, thinking of all these factors as being so deeply interconnected and deeply interrelated as you move towards designing and facilitating these kinds of experiences. Yes, and, and in the book, you, you center a lot of the discussion on, um, on what you call user experience. Um, can, can you briefly explain why we should start with the user experience and, and, and user experience principles when developing online teaching and learning experiences? I'd be happy to speak to that. So when you are accessing anything online um, or using an app on your phone, any kind of website or app, I should say, um, you are first and foremost engaging with that space as, as a user. There are certain things you aim to do when you go on a website or when you access an app. You're not just there willy-nilly exploring. Um, and so I think this orientation is useful for teaching and training context in particular, because it recenters our awareness that when students come into a class too, they're there with specific outcomes and objectives in mind, right? Students all have, you know, they might have different reasons for being there. Um, but ultimately, I think what user experience reminds us of is that we can't take for granted that there are things we need to do when we enter into any particular space. And it's our job as a designer, a facilitator, or teacher to lower the barriers to making sure that people can get the things they want to get done in those spaces. Um, it's kind of a basic access issue, really. I mean, the, the comparison I like to use for folks who kind of do teach more in um, kind of a face-to-face -face or embodied classroom is it's like you wouldn't be able to teach in a classroom where the doors are locked or where all the tables are smashed together in the middle of the room, or the chairs have broken legs. Um, the same thing goes for an online course. It's There is some technical infrastructural issues that might be outside of our control, but there are things as instructors we can make easier for students, right? Um, putting the tables in a circle as opposed to having them in a row in the front of the room um, communicates really different things. Um, they communicate really different values, I should say, about the classroom interactions. And the same exact thing goes for when you're building an online experience. Um, you have to think about where are 
the chairs, so to speak, in the room? Where are the tables? Um, how do people interact and engage? How do you help them use the tools that you have built? Or how do you help them use the tools you're curating or cobbling together as an instructor to make sure that students are really able to use those tools successfully? They're able to get to the end goals and outcomes that are critical to their success in the class. I, that makes a lot of sense. And I, but I remember when, well, reading uh, and, and now listening to you describe it, I, um, I was thinking these principles, of course, apply just as much to on-site learning as they do to um, online learning. And, and you mentioned rearrangements of the chair, but there's, I think, a whole other dimension to it, which a number of this, and this reminded me of, of something I, I experienced a number of years ago when I visited the Singapore Polytechnic um, in, in Singapore, where they actually designed their learning spaces to essentially bring the students in a certain frame of mind. Let me give a couple of, um, of, of, um, of examples. One was um, for a cybersecurity course, which tended to be a, a very standard, large number of student enrollment course in an auditorium. They ended up putting it on the top floor of a building and you would take the elevator up and the elevator doors would open and it looked like you stepped into a completely science fiction type of environment it was a huge logo of the cyber defenders and then the, the the sort of a purple light illuminating it and the learning space was not at all looked nothing like a, a, a traditional learning space it had computers it had people set up at workstations the way people would work if they were actually involved in cybersecurity in a firm marketing course was designed in a floor of a building that had been transformed into a space that looked like a PR firm with, you know, tables to socialize, with an, an audio shop, with a recording uh, place. And, you know, so you enter that space and all of a sudden your mind thinks, oh, I'm working in a PR, PR firm. I'm not learning about marketing by listening to marketing. And one which I found the most stunning one was, uh, was for creative writing. Um, the, 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 the buildings are built on a hill and because the ground is sloping, the first floor has a, has a, has a floor that is not horizontal. It goes down and that space is, was typically used as storage space rather than anything else. But they converted that to a learning space by actually putting a a undulating floor there, wooden floor. And in order to get into that space, you have to go on all fours and crawl through a circular door. You can't even keep your backpack on. And then the furniture was all soft and it was all, the windows were at an angle. I mean, it all looks completely out of the ordinary, sort of telling the students, you leave your expectations of a normal space at the door. And unleash your creativity. So I really, I really like that design principle in general. And what, what your chapter on this did was sort of remind me that we should really apply a lot of the principles that we learn from online learning back to on-site learning. And, and, and that's actually my next, my next uh, sort of question. I mean, we had COVID. COVID forced us all online. It had a tremendous impact on my teaching. I think that in the summer 
between that half semester that we were online to the year that we went fully remote, I probably innovated more than in the previous decades uh, of my teaching. And I was so excited. I thought, you know, maybe COVID is going to be the turning point where education finally gets out of the Middle Ages. And I've been very disappointed about the end of COVID and, you know, seeing that most, if not all or close to all of my colleagues went straight back to what they did before COVID, not taking any lessons back from online to on-site. So what are your experiences and, and what are some of the things, if we think about the people who are teaching on-site, which are probably the majority of our people who are listening to this podcast, what should they take from the wisdom guarded in your book, you know, if they're not teaching an online course to their in-person on-site course? Right. I really, if you are just listening to this and not watching, you didn't kind of catch my vigorous nodding <laughs> at all of Eric's um, comments about the impacts around COVID being so dramatic. And yet the, you know, the aftermath of that, if you will, feeling somewhat less so. And I think a little bit disappointing for many, I think, people who are really excited about innovative pedagogies. Um, so I think there's a few lessons from the book that could be useful for folks who are teaching on-site. And Eric, I appreciate your example, too, of sort of thinking about campus spaces and sites and how those spaces, the embodied experiences of being in those spaces, absolutely dramatically impacts what kind of learning is possible. So I'd say the first big takeaway I'd encourage someone reading um, Design for Learning to think about, even in an on-site context, it's just, again, attentiveness to this alignment between environment, course goals, and who learners are themselves. I think that it's really easy when we walk into an on-site classroom to make a lot of assumptions about what happens in that space. And we're enculturated, I was enculturated, I should say, to believe that when you, you know, walk into a classroom, you're kind of always taking, you know, I should say, excuse me, if you're a student walking into a classroom, you have some very tacit expectations about how to perform. The teacher's going to lead the conversation. You're going to sit back passively. There's a hierarchy. There's a relationship there. And you're kind of expected to perform in some very normative kinds of ways. You're expected to raise your hand if you're in a face-to-face -face classroom. You're expected to be quiet at certain times. You're expected to be noisy at different times. Um, and so I think, to me, what's refreshing and exciting about online learning is that you have a chance to kind of reset those expectations because we don't have the same tacit assumptions in many cases about how learning looks in um, whether it's a video conferencing tool or a more asynchronous space, a discussion space, um, a chat space. Those just create different sets of expectations and they often flatten out some of the implicit hierarchies that can happen in a face-to-face -face classroom. So if you are teaching on site, I would say that it's worth having a conversation with your students about your roles and their roles really lean, take that step back and lean into some conversation about what you all are there to do exactly. What are the expectations that we have? Why are those expectations important? And as a class community, you have an opportunity, I think, to either discuss or have some conversation or even make it an assignment to kind of share like what makes for meaningful learning experiences 
And how can the instructors and students work together um, to create the environment they want to see built? So I think that's one lesson. There, as you alluded to, Eric, in the opener, we have a couple chapters in this book, the first two chapters, are all actually about doing sort of user research and understanding who your students are. And there are some great exercises in there that come directly from the user experience research space that encourage people designing to actually anticipate who their students are before they even walk into the room, right? So whether you're teaching in English class or a math class or a psychology class, whatever the case may be, it's worth thinking about why, why is a student taking this class, right? What, what might they know about this content? How are they orienting to it? What are their motivations? Um, you can't anticipate everything. And you want to listen to who your students actually are once they're actually in the space. So you don't want to reproduce stereotypes or make too many assumptions. But I would say maybe a second takeaway then from the book that someone can use on site is it's very helpful, I think, to try and imagine, again, who the students are coming into your room. So as you design your syllabus, as you design your assignments, as you design your activities, you're really trying to think of people first. You're really trying to recenter and remember, what is their purpose for being in this room? What might their prior experiences be that could shape how they might orient to this topic? Um, and the more you can sort of think about that in advance, it just helps you as the instructor generate more thoughtful assignments and activities. And again, you can recalibrate and reorient once your students are there. And I would say maybe a third takeaway, right, is whether you're online or on site, checking in with students regularly, right? So user experience researchers will do ongoing polls, quick temperature checks, right? You've probably been on websites before. You've got a little pop-up that asks, how's your experience been on this website so far? Or when you finish a, a customer service exchange, you know, how'd that go for you? Um, you don't have to treat your class like a customer service experience. I'm not suggesting that. But a little temperature check, right? A quick, you know, poll. Hey, was that activity, was that hard or easy? Um, and when you went online to submit your assignment, how'd that feel? Um, this discussion, did it work or no, right? Like just a really quick question. You could have students submit it in, you know, you go analog on an index card um, or you could have them do an online poll even in your class on their smartphones. Um, There's so many ways to just do a quick check-in at a meta level about how things are feeling and how things are going. Um, that gives you as instructor, I think, a much more nimble and flexible sense um, of how the class is really feeling for students and I think that can not only build community and trust, but I think it helps instructors become just more attentive to and aware of the conditions that might be shaping their classroom environments. That, that is very, very helpful, I think. Um, so, you know, turning more towards your book now, and we'll, we'll you know, I think we, we've seen the connection now between online and on-site and, and heard some ideas that that could work in, in both environments. Um, you know, this whole idea about user experience principle, principles and, and their applications to, to an online course or workshop, we've sort of spoken about it in a more abstract way, but you know, what, are, what are some examples from the book, given our, our audience will not have read your book? Yes, I'll provide two examples to provide a little teaser. But of course, the book itself is all about extrapolating on these examples. But it is helpful to your point, Eric, to I think really understand like, what does this really mean or look like? So I've given some examples actually already in terms of doing that user research and creating like kind of personas that help you capture 
and remember who students are in a class environment. Um, but I'd say another exercise that I think is a good example of applying user experience kind of frameworks to teaching um, is an example that Michael and I kind of call aligning um, aligning a problem with an outcome. So a lot of folks who've been doing higher education pedagogy for a while are familiar with the concept of developing learning outcomes. You know, what should your students be able to do by the time they finish a class? But an angle we got from user experience research that was a real light bulb moment for me and Michael was, it's not just about thinking through what students should be able to do, but we need to identify a problem that someone wants to solve when they come into a class, right? So when someone goes on a website or goes onto an app, they're typically trying to get something done. They have a question they're wanting to ask. They have a concern that's on their mind. Um, There's something they want to research or something they want to find out. So a great exercise that we have is, Think about the kind of problems your students might encounter with your content matter before they get into the room. And then what kinds of outcomes might align with that particular problem or that particular use case? And what I like about that framing is it's not just about what should they be able to do when the course is over, that's important, but it's also about what kinds of questions are they going to come into the class with? What's gonna, what are the sticking points <laughs> that they're going to encounter? What are the lists of things that you think students might be thinking about um, before they walk into the room. And then again, how might the objectives you're identifying help solve or respond to that particular problem? Um, and again, it's kind of rehumanizes, I think, this work. I, I think a lot of folks, myself included, sometimes experience outcomes writing itself to be a bit of a formality. It can feel really disconnected from the actual experience of teaching the class. It's sort of the step back. Um, so I think when you kind of reorient this around the, frame, the framework of what are the problems that students are going to encounter? What are the problems that users are going to encounter right up front? Again, it kind of forces you to remind yourself of like the challenges and pitfalls to be mindful of as you're designing, as you're thinking about those things in a really proactive way. Um, I'll give one other example. Another example of what applying a user experience lens might look like in a course is I'm going to give something that's maybe more technical, but I think it's important for the face-to-face classroom too, is to literally think about um, the different pathways through which students will access the instructional content in the course. Um, all too often when I work with instructors, and again, guilty as charged, I've done this too, we have a tendency to kind of like dump everything that we want the students to read or work on into like a file cabinet, into a learning management system, or we throw it all into a course reader, or we kind of just fling a textbook and say, here you go. Um, but I think not being attentive to the multiple access points that students might use to access the content not scaffolding how and when students will encounter content in the course with the activities can make it more challenging for students to realize what the benefit or the value is of the content for the activities that they're going to accomplish. So um, I would say that it's really important to think about, for example, if you're having students do a reading, testing out how they'll access that reading on a mobile phone, testing it out on a laptop, testing out what it looks like when you print, like just kind of thinking about how the various modalities for accessing content are going to shape how they engage and orient with it. Or likewise, if you're having students access multimedia content in your course, if videos are a big part of how students are getting the core content for your class, think about, again, watching your video on a mobile phone, um, re-watching it in a browser, um, watching it with just the captions on, watching it just by listening and not looking at the visual, right? How do those experiences shape how and when the students get the content? Testing out those different environments, being attentive to the accessibility of this content 
um, is something, again, that user experience designers do. And I think instructors sometimes think of as an, as a nice to have, as an add-on, not as a need to do. Uh, but I would argue this is really, if you really want students to read and engage with that content, um, you have to do these test runs, even if that means maybe having less content in your course, pruning back, um, thinking about what's really core or essential. It's more important that the, the few core things are essential than um, having everything there not be accessible. <laughs> I see. So, you know, you, you already sort of mentioned that some, some of the challenges, but let's say, you know, somebody reads through your book and thinks I'm going to implement that. What do you think are some of the challenges that they will experience in, in applying, you know, the principles that you, 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 you know, put forward in your book to their own online course or workshop? I think the biggest challenge I expect some folks will have when encountering the application of this work is simply time, getting used to the time it takes to really design materials attentively. You know, I didn't learn when I was a graduate student, you know, how to make my course materials mobile friendly, for example. It's just not a skill that I was trained to develop. Um, I think, you know, I wasn't trained either necessarily to be thinking about how to scaffold activity and content and help students encounter that in a clear linear way throughout a course. Um, because I didn't have that experience when I was a student, right? I, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a millennial. So like I did have the internet and email when I was a student, but the use of LMSs was really different when I was in college. It really was just kind of like a filing cabinet and you sort of figured out what you needed to find from there. Um, so I guess my point is I do think that a challenge will just be taking a little bit of time to really get used to and really understand whatever platform you're using to develop and deliver your course materials. Even if you're teaching face-to-face, -face, you do have to think about how students are accessing the materials in multiple places. Because we just know that uh, my line is always when you're teaching an online or teaching an on-site course, you are kind of still teaching an online course to some extent um, because there's sort of no denying that that's such a, a ubiquitous access point for engaging with course content at this point. So time's a challenge. I think the other big challenge though is actually just the exercise of remembering what it's like to be a student, especially if you've been teaching for a very long time or even if you've just been teaching a short amount of time, once you switch into that instructor role, it's easy to forget um, how challenging it is to encounter new content with something that you are so familiar with, or it's really challenging to kind of defamiliarize um, your own sort of assumptions around engaging with the content that you're choosing. I think part of applying a UX lens is really being able to shift your lenses constantly, try to put a fresh eye on what it looks like to pick a certain reading, what it looks like to facilitate a certain kind of activity, what it looks like to present ideas in a new way. So I would really just encourage folks trying these frameworks out, again, to try and focus less on how much content can you pack in and more on really trying to pick key critical materials and test them out in a number of different ways and environments or bring other people, right? I think sometimes we think of teaching as kind of a solo activity, but I really think of it as a team sport. So if you have colleague, trusted colleagues you work with, swap materials, do some peer review. Even that lens or framework will help you overcome that challenge of getting outside your own head and your own perspective. Um, 
I want to acknowledge that not every teacher listening to this or trainer listening to this is going to have a ton of freedom over how much content they use, right? I know whenever I give that suggestion of like, do less, I always have someone who kind of objects saying, well, I have a standard curriculum I have to use, or I know I have to cover this much content because this course is like a gateway course to upper division classes that are more specialized, where if they don't have this set of foundational knowledge, they will not be successful. Um, to which I typically will say, I understand. Sometimes you don't have full control over this. Do your best. Try just one alternative way of testing out your content, even if it's not two or three alternative ways. Like take a survey of your students at the beginning of the term and just ask, how are you going to be accessing this course? And you give them, you know, is it on your phone, on the computer, on paper, and see how it kind of plays out. And you can do your testing and thinking about your content in alignment with how your students have engaged or responded to that feedback as well. Yeah, that's very, very helpful. And what you said about, um, you know, forgetting what it is like uh, to be a student is, um, reminds me of uh, Susan Ambrose's book on how learning works. And she, I think she calls it the expert blind spot. If I'm mm-hmm. And it's so hard for us to uh, not, you know, to realize that we have an expert blind spot. Totally. So, uh, yeah, a lot of my, my podcasts lately, you know, from from assessment to equity-minded teaching to improving mental health in education, which I, I had not initially expected to to be connected, have all really come down to to the same thing at a deep level, namely promoting intrinsic motivation to learn. So my 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 question here is what is the best way of incorporating the principle to online learning? Or maybe I should rephrase my own question here. Are there ways, because of course, you know, assessment, equity-minded teaching, mental health, all of those apply, of course, just as much to online as on-site learning. But maybe are there ways in which we can use an online learning environment in a in a in a different way to promote intrinsic motivation from on-site learning. Mm. That's a great question. I my gut reaction is yes, <laughs> there are, um, and I think that one idea that immediately comes to mind is when you are teaching a course online, you as instructor are necessarily letting go of some control of how students are engaging and interacting with the content, right? When you're in a classroom, there's a lot of control that you have there. You can really, you you have a captive audience. And in that space, you can shape how that captive audience behaves and engages. Online, you do not have that. You just, you give up control. People are going to access your course content, however they're going to access it. The tie-in with intrinsic motivation here, though, is that when you build an online course environment, You can lean into students' agency by gesturing in your materials where students have optionality to explore things and dig deeply into what makes them curious. So let me give a really concrete example, right? In in in-class environment, so my background's in English composition, as I said, so I'll use an example for my field. Since when you're in class, you might ask everyone to read a passage together in time. Everyone has to read that same passage. They reflect on it. They think about it. That's all they do. But when you're online, you have this option to say, hey, I'm going to give you four examples of readings. 
pick whichever one appeals to you the most. I'm going to give you a little thumbnail sketch of each. And because students are accessing this more at their own pace and doing it more at their own time, you give them a little bit of that optionality that really can stoke some curiosity a different way. Um, and in doing so, you can have students really be agential and think about which of these readings is most interesting to me. You could also you know, generate some curiosity to kind of link them to resources around the web, let them explore, invite assignments that take full advantage of the capacity to, to do research, um, to follow a link trail, to think about how ideas are interconnected and interrelated, um, or to bring in their experiences with finding related multimedia on the web that might have relevance to the readings that you've done. Um, and so my example here is kind of comparing a synchronous on-site class session with an asynchronous online class session. Let's say you were even like teaching a class synchronously via Zoom. Um, you could similarly have students pick a reading, choose a breakout room based on that reading, say, and similarly kind of connect with their peers around something that interests them with a sort of slightly expanded period of time to do it in. So I guess my point is we know that students are motivated to learn when they see the personal connection to their worlds, and importantly, when they feel some um, sense of control themselves, when they feel like there's relevance to, and they have some choice, the relevance to what they want to do, and they have some choice to connect that relevancy in the ways that they see fit. You could absolutely. do this in an on-site classroom too. It's just a little bit yeah. harder. No, no, absolutely. And I, I think I think it's very interesting that you mentioned control there because I've been a big proponent of you know self determination and uh, which requires uh, you know a sense of community, a sense of growth, and a sense of autonomy. And I think that um, the online environment actually facilitates giving the learner much more of a sense of autonomy because you control your, your your learning environment and your schedule and your engagement in a very different way from uh, from on site that that's very insightful well um, we, we need to wrap up but I have one very short question that I always like to end with well a question that requires a very short answer let's put it that way um, and it's the following, based on your experience, if there's just one simple thing that our listeners could do, and, and I'm purposely using a, an action verb here, do, um, right away to design of their learning environment, online or on-site, whichever it is, what would you like that to be? Like, you know, like today or tomorrow, what, what, what would you recommend that to do? I'd say one very small intervention they could do is really just design one check-in <laughs> with their students. One deliberate check-in, but a check-in not about the content, but a check-in about the design, right? Ask two to three questions of your students about how they're experiencing the structure of activities, the scaffolding activities, um, or their access to course content. Um, this won't take long to do, um, but it's a great example of using, again, student perspective and experiences with the class itself to then inform how you do that work. So it's, if this isn't like a totally new idea, um, but I think it's one simple thing that could unlock or just open up a totally different way of seeing or understanding how you design your course that's really very much informed by your students' or your users' perspectives. 
Well, I would like to conclude by thanking you, our listeners, for listening and thanking our guest, Janae Cohn. Thank you so much for hosting me, and I hope people find the book useful. Janae's book, Design for Learning, is available from Rosenfeld Press, and you can purchase it online at uh, http colon slash slash rosenfeldmedia.com. Rosenfeld Media, of course, all one word, slash books, slash design for learning, where the three words design for learning are separated by hyphens. But if you're listening today, I have some very exciting news for you. Early next year, you can participate in a perusal engage event for a four-week asynchronous communal reading experience of Janae's new book. This is an author-facilitated event, so for a nominal fee, you'll not only get access to the book, but you'll be reading and interacting with Janae and other like-minded educators like me, brainstorming on, on how to design any digital or, as we now know, on-site learning experience. To learn more about that, go to perusal.com engage, and you can find our Social Learning Amplified podcast and more on perusal.com slash social learning amplified all back together. Subscribe to find out about other episodes, and I hope to welcome you back on a future one. Social Learning Amplified is sponsored by Perusal, the social learning platform that motivates students by increasing engagement, driving collaboration, and building community through your favorite course content. To learn more, join us at one of our introductory webinars. Visit perusal.com to learn more and register.